this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Jacob Todson. Uh, Jacob's a really interesting guy. Uh, he has a really interesting story. Uh, he also has a, a an excellent YouTube channel called The Wisdom of Odin. And uh, he's been kind of exploring the world, especially Europe and, and Northern Europe, exploring some of these traditions like the Norse tradition, the Celtic traditions, uh, and really using his uh, expertise in photography and video making to, to make some really excellent content. Uh, he's made some beautiful uh, videos on these Norse traditions, Celtic traditions, the the, the Druids, um, one uh, video that we mentioned, uh, I think it's entitled Four Ways That Shamanism Will Save the World, but also about these uh, subjects like shamanism, um, as he puts it, these more kind of earth-based or nature-based uh, traditions, uh, and really sharing his uh, interest and in exploration in ancient traditions and, and religions around the world. So it was really fascinating to have him on. Um, uh, similar to my last video, I was uh, interested in bringing on some people to talk more about these Norse or Celtic, uh, kind of uh, um, more traditional or indigenous European traditions. So it was really a pleasure to have him on. He's doing great work. And uh, we talked about these Norse and Celtic traditions and just his story and him kind of packing up and going on this exploration, which even kind of mimicked one of the stories we talked about which was this wandering aspect of, of Odin, one of the Norse gods. Uh, so it was a really interesting conversation, and I think and hope you all will really enjoy this one. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. It's a website. You can sign up and, and give as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, to all of the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. I, I really appreciate it. And if you're able to do that, thank you very much in advance. It's really what allows me to continue to uh, to do this podcast. Um, if you're not able to do that, uh, as always, some of the really small things really help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, uh, liking the video, uh, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, leaving any questions or comments in the comments section, all of those things really help, uh, again, with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. And then if you're listening to this on Apple's, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the major platforms, uh, subscribing or following the show and also leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Jacob. From the maze. Running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out from the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Well, cool, man. Welcome. Um, maybe to start, uh, you could just give a little bit of uh, a background about yourself. Uh, I, I found out about you through your YouTube channel, which uh, I, I think you're doing some amazing work. And even kind of the, the little promo you have is, is you packing up your bags, sitting in an empty apartment with your suitcase. Uh, so maybe just a bit uh, about yourself, like where you're from, what, what your interests 
in, in life were and in, in spirituality and these kind of traditions, ancient cultures? And then what was that, what was that impetus for you to really pack up and, and embark on this journey you've been on? Uh, yeah. So first off, just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on a podcast. Uh, it's been a bit since I've been on a podcast. Uh, so it's good. I, I like them because, you know, with the video, you know, I usually aim for like 10 or 15 minute videos. And so you really have to cut around a lot of things. So the, the ability just to ramble on a podcast is actually quite nice. Um, I ramble. <laughs> so uh, if some people like rambling, you, you found your way to the right podcast. Um, so my story, I think um, I say this all the time. What makes my story remarkable is how unremarkable it is. Um, I grew up like so many people in America. Um, I grew up in Ohio originally. All my family are from Kentucky, and eventually I would move back. Um, but I was raised in, you know, suburbia. I went to a really boring high school in a really boring town. I went to church every Sunday, and my life was not looking to be that exciting. Like if you would have looked at me at eighteen or seventeen when I graduated high school, you would never expect me to be this guy that's packing up his bags and traveling Europe to research ancient religions. Um, you know, it's just not something people from my town did, you know, most people that I know still live in my hometown, which is a story for so many people in the Midwest United States and in, in the corn country, because that's where I'm from is, is corn country, uh, where you drive for 18 hours in one direction and all you see is corn and soybeans. Um, and so I think it was this unremarkable, unexciting life that kind of got me interested in, in looking into more like what is life outside of this? Because I know I definitely didn't want to end up being one of those people that got stuck in my hometown, uh, that never did anything, that, you know, worked at the factory making car parts, got married young, had kids. And before you know it, you're 35, 40, and, you know, you're overweight and unhappy. Um, so I know I didn't want that. And so I go to college uh, in Kentucky. That's when I transitioned back down. Um, and I managed to get out of the church. I never was baptized. I was involved with it. I went to, you know, all the different vacation Bible schools. But I never felt anything. Uh, you know, I saw my parents feeling something. I saw my friends feeling stuff. But I never felt God. I never felt Jesus or anything like that. And so I think what I was searching for was this experience. I'm like, I want to experience religion. I don't want just to believe. Um, and then sure enough, I, I got into Buddhism at first because it was the first thing available. Like, you know, you get to college. It's the only other religion that wasn't monotheistic. It was something different. And so I got into Buddhism and meditation. And that was kind of the the gateway drug, so to speak, into more. Uh, so as I got into meditation, I started researching other religions and cultures. Um, and then I really started getting called to the Norse side of things. You know, Norse mythology really interested me. It always had. Um, and then I was finding out there's people that actually did still worship them as gods today. And there was still religious practices around it. Um, and I would say even before that point, I never even knew paganism was a thing. I think it was like that that Satanism that your parents talk about. They're like, oh, that's just the Satanists. You know, that's all they are, just the Satanists. And so I don't think I knew, ever heard the term pagan until I was like 22 or 23. Um, and then, yeah, I really started getting into it. I started doing small little rituals and little ceremonies, making a lot of mistakes um, as a lot of people who have no idea how to do this, how, no idea how to return to nature-based religions. Um, you know, I was just trying it out because I didn't have a teacher. At most, I had books. Um, and then eventually I was probably practicing for two or three years and this lack of teachers was really bothering me. Um, you know, I was reaching out, uh, to whoever I could find, you know, like I want to learn more and either I was rejected or, you know, just ghosted and never talked to, or you join these online communities and they're very gatekeepy. They're very aggressive, uh, very egotistical. And so at some point I just kind of felt this calling to start my own platform 
uh, to actually show what I was doing and to, you know, express myself spiritually. I'm just sitting here in Kentucky, going to Kentucky mountains, yelling Odin's name into the, into the valley and just seeing what happens and recording it and sharing it. And uh, obviously this passion inspired many people. Uh, a community was grown from this um, that is now a nonprofit recognized by the government. Um, we have a few hundred members across the United States. We have uh, groups in the Netherlands and England. And uh, we had our first Canadian gathering, our first Scottish gathering. And we, we have about 20 events a year now. Um, and it all kind of started, just, I think, from the spark of passion that I had. Uh, and now, you know, I couldn't do it without, I think we have uh, 20 board members now with uh, three coming up, um, you know, and just, it's just crazy how much it's grown up. And of course, wrapped into this is the, is the YouTube as well. Um, and yeah, the YouTube has been my full-time job now for three years, I think. I started, I uh, did full-time 2020, so three years, uh, but I've been doing the YouTube for four. And so, yeah, it's been a wild ride and I'm sure we're going to dive a lot into it, but um, I'm finding that the summary of my life is no longer becoming short. <laughs> so you you said, you, you know, between Kentucky and Ohio, kind of this this more Midwestern area you, you grew up and you were going to church on Sundays. Was was religion and spirituality something that um, that was kind of with you from childhood, a, a curiosity in that or did also kind of the church you were going to turn you off in a way for that? Or do you think it, 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 it also sparked something in you that, that it kind of led you on a deeper quest? Like there was something there, but maybe you weren't getting it from church. Like, what do you think the role, because uh, it was interesting. You, that was one of the things you mentioned that you, you went to church every Sunday as part of your background. Um, what do you think that role was in because it seems like one of the things you you do have a deep interest in is these ancient ancient religions yeah um so if i would say there's any positive influence from church uh one thing i actually loved every sunday is when everyone shook each other's hands um i really loved like that i went to a baptist church and that was something they did all the time is before service began they were like you know look to the person to your left or your to your right and just say good morning and i loved it. it was the only thing i enjoyed about church i loved just going up to random people and shaking their hand uh, and saying good morning and everyone was genuinely nice uh, and it was really cool it was just everything after that i'd never enjoyed um i never got because really ritual is just absent from uh evangelical uh really you know christianity like baptism um you know is like the only ceremony other than that, it's just lectures and modern singing. And that just never really spoke to me. Um, I joke all the time, if I was raised Catholic, there might have been a chance that I, I never la uh, left Catholicism uh, because I think ultimately what I was craving was ritual. Uh, and this lack of ritual is really, I think, what I was seeking in the end um, is just having just belief where it's, you know, believe as hard as you can. That never resonated with me. I needed experience. I needed uh, to actually interact with the divine, so to speak. I needed to become a part of it rather than just being this solemn observer. Um, and so as far as this, like greeting each other, like shaking hands, um, you know, it maybe not is the core of why I do this. Uh, but one of the things I'm really adamant about at every event. This is like, you know, if I go to a help event out, it's something I tell every leader uh, that I, I pass this on to is hug every single person that shows up, no matter what. If you miss someone, you have failed. It's, it's the thing I'm most anal about um, because I can't tell you how many times someone has come to one of these events so terrified uh, because they've been in a similar position to me in the past 
where they felt alone, they felt anxious, they felt like they weren't a part of something. Uh, but then they they get hugged the moment they show up to one of our events and it completely changes their perspective. Um, and so I think something so little like that, a handshake, a hug, a hello, uh, can have the biggest impact on people. And so maybe that comes from the Baptist upbringing, maybe, but I wouldn't give it credit that part. But, um, but yeah, does that answer the question, I think? Yeah. Yeah, so when yeah. was it that you you started becoming interested in, in ancient traditions and religions? It was... Uh, was that when you went to college or there, there was something before that? Uh, you, you mentioned when you went to college, like you actually started studying Buddhism. Was was there an interest in, in other religions before that as well? This is uh, going to sound so probably embarrassing and cringy because I was a teenager. Everything we did back then was cringy and embarrassing. Uh, but when I was watching TV shows, the things that always attracted me in TV shows were the spiritual people. Um, whether it was watching like Avatar, the last airbender, you know, that had a very Eastern, uh, theme to it, you know, meditation, monks, magic, spirits, you know, all these things are watching spirited away, uh, you know, and seeing the world full of spirits and all this stuff. Uh, and even something like Avatar, you know, I saw Avatar in theaters like seven times when it first came out. And I think I was like 15, I think, or something like that. Uh, and that was really influential to me to see a very intense spiritual connection to nature because that's something that's very much missing for Christianity. And even for my family, you know, we were always the family that went, uh, we drove to the overlook or we drove to the, the waterfall. We never hiked. We never were in nature. Uh, and so I think I was, you know, longing for this rituals, as I mentioned before, I was longing for this, the spirits everywhere. Like I love this concept of the spirits everywhere. Uh, and you know, now knowing that it's, it's essentially true, maybe not as like romanticized, but it is true, um, is this interaction of spirits all around us, uh, and then combining that with nature and everything, it all came together. Um, so I definitely think I idolize more of these characters from shows or movies, uh, that were more spiritually attuned. Um, uh, and so like that might've been in the background when I got to college, uh, and I was free, you know, free from the shackles of having to go to church every Sunday. And I was like, okay, what do I believe? And I'm sure there was like an atheist window for a while where I was just like, whatever, I'm in college, let's have fun. But then like many people, I think who go down like the atheism path, it doesn't take long before they start questioning reality again, because that's just so innately human to question. Why are we here? Why do I have feelings? Uh, and definitely, you know, when I, you go into nature, and you're like, wow, what is this feeling I have looking at this vista, looking at this tree, feeling this waterfall? I think there's just an innate spiritual connection we have to nature. Um, and that's always been, I think, the the guiding compass for me, um, you know, and that's even beyond Buddhism, because I think, you know, the Buddhism, at least we have access to in the States, isn't very nature based. It's, you know, it's based in the self. And that, that also wasn't enough for me. I didn't like just focusing on the self. I, I wanted to focus on the bigger picture. Do you have a sense, because even, for example, in the U.S., uh, religion used to be a big part, not only the, the, the founding of the country, but the immigrants who went there uh, a lot were religious refugees. And, and uh, it seems like religion, I mean, specifically Christianity, was a very big part of people's lives. And I remember reading a, a study recently where it might have even been a minority of people now identify with some religion. Uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but, um, and it seems like there, there is 
a growing trend towards, or at least there was a growing trend towards atheism. Do you have any sense of why that was, dear? Why that is? Do you think it is that that there's been more of a disconnect from nature, and and that that atheism is kind of a natural path that someone follows as that disconnect becomes more? Um, because it seems like a lot of people, as you said, that also this act of questioning, part of that questioning, can be moving towards atheism as well. Ooh, there's many rabbit holes before us right now we could dive into. <laughs> I just have to choose which one I want to dive in uh, because we go, we could go historical and talk about uh, why monotheism became a thing um, in general, and it's typically because of power. Uh, the moment Christianity became big, at least in Northern Europe, is the moment kings wanted to seize control of entire countries. Uh, because you can't have a religion that has multiple gods when you want to be the one king. It doesn't make sense. Um, like, you know, everywhere you see, you know, whether it's uh, Harold Bluetooth or um, Olaf Trigverson, um, you know, all these kings that you can see the moment of Christianity coming. It's when these kings wanted power. And so I think this dynamic of power went on for a very, very long time. Um, and that's why we see Christianity for, for basically the extent of monarchies into imperialism and colonialism. That was the guiding compass because they needed absolute power. Uh, and I think that all came to a head. I mean, obviously, with World War One and World War Two, we saw what happened when uh, we have these global egos come together and clash. I mean, World War One is the greatest example of that because that war was so stupid because uh, it really was the war of ego. Um, and then uh, World War Two was also that uh, the war of domination and all this stuff. Um, and we're living in the aftermath of that still. I think, you know, it's very clear we're still living in the aftermath of uh, all these powers coming together and colliding. Uh, and now these powers falling apart. And uh, I think a lot of us, especially Americans, uh, we had this driving compass of the American dream, you know, America number one. Uh, and that was what everyone cared for. We were the first on the moon. We had the biggest military. We had the most money. Uh, we had the prettiest country, blah, blah, blah. But now, you know, we're starting to see all those things fall apart. Uh, we're not number one in everything. We're barely number one in anything anymore besides military and economy. Um, and, well, not even economy. We're just, you know, high up there. And so I think a lot of people in my generation didn't have this driving compass. We didn't just kick the Nazis' asses. Um, you know, we're living in the aftermath of 9-11, of the Gulf War, of Vietnam. Uh, and so we don't have this American identity. We don't have this sense of power and monotheism anymore that drives us. And so I think we had to return to nature. We had to return to uh, self-help, to self-discovery. And again, I think, you know, things like meditation or, you know, modern new age healing practices, a lot of them are gateway drugs into, into nature-based religions. Um, and so I think in America, that's what we're seeing. It's the death, with the death of America first, America number one, we see the death of Christianity. Um, and I think the other rabbit hole I saw is like, you know, I've been to Estonia. Estonia is a really interesting case with religion because I think it's less than 15% of the country identifies as religious. Um, and this is partially in part because they were so lately converted. Uh, they weren't converted until the 13 or 1400s and they were very aggressively converted by the Danes. Um, and they were kind of still nature-based for a very long time. And then in the 1800s, they got more nationalistic and they started bringing this back. But then communism came in and destroyed religion again. And so religion is in a really weird spot in a place like Estonia or any of the Baltic countries or ex-Soviet states. Um, and you do see like both a revival. Like I, I met an Estonian friend and she said when uh, communism fell, the first thing people did was they went to church because it was illegal for so long that they, they wanted to do something that was fun. 
Uh, and most of my Estonian friends have been baptized because it was something cool. It was something hip to say, fuck you to the USSR. Um, and, but most of them are Christian today. So it's such a weird, different case. Uh, but yeah, in the case of America, um, it's still very Christian, like, especially where I'm from. Um, I think it's like, I think it's 60%. I think of Americans still identify as Christian. Uh, but I think that I, I do believe that number is going down, especially in the younger generation. You've used this term a few times, uh, nature-based religions. How, how would you define that? And, and, and what are some examples of that? Mm. Uh, so I think this uh, both comes into play with indigenous cultures because uh, the majority of indigenous cultures have a, a nature-based religion because they're, they're religions that were uh, in spiritualities born from nature. Uh, it was born from this idea that we are not number one. We are not the top of the food chain. We're an equal part or a lesser part of the food chain. Um, and so when I say in, uh, you know nature-based, I, I do this to incorpor uh, incorporate indigenous practices um, and I, I would say I define that as the, the cultures that still practice what they have from the past, the, you know, their ancient, you know, tribal practices, they're still practicing today because they still survive. Um, because I wouldn't say like, you know, someone who is a Norse pagan or a Celtic pagan, it's not the same as saying they're indigenous um, because there are so many different cultures layered on top of what is called indigenous in England that it's a, it's really hard to define that as indigenous. Uh, and so I just say it's nature based. Uh, because, you know, I, I think it works more as a, a blanketing term uh, when describing this this return to uh, spiritual connectiveness to to the, the world around us. And, and kind of contrasting that to, to Christianity, do you think Christianity also had a nature at its base and then at a certain point that began to change? Or do you think it was something just very separate? Maybe, um, maybe not at its core, maybe not at its start. Um, I can make an argument that I can't prove right now. It's more of a theory, but uh, monotheistic religions were birthed from very sunny places. You know, you know, yes, there's natural beauty, beauty in the Middle East uh, and, you know, in parts of Africa and stuff like that, of course. But the predominant natural force is the sun. And so I know there's been cases that have been argued that monotheism, particularly Christianity, is actually just sun worship. It's just an ancient sun cult that went too far. <laughs> uh, and I could see that. I could I could see that argument of there. At one point, it was like a sun cult because the sun was the predominant power. Um, but what it became by the time it entered Rome was not nature-based. Um, I, I, I believe genuinely when it entered Rome, it was the poor person's religion because Roman religion was very hierarchical and very political. Um, in fact, most people at the top of Roman religion probably didn't actually believe in it. They just believed in the power that was created from it and the, and the control. Um, and this is why you also see like the cults pop up, like the cult of Isis, the cult of Sibyl, uh, Sibyl, uh, the cult of uh, Mithras. They popped up because people were lacking in spiritual connection. Uh, but these cults were still very exclusive. These cults were, you know, for, you know, aristocrats, they were for warriors um, or for women and they, or they had strange rules to get into. They were secret societies. Uh, and so the cult of Christ, the cult of Christianity was for everyone and it was for everyone's religion. So I genuinely believe that Christianity, at least at the time of entering Rome was a, it was a poor person's religion. Um, and that's what made it popular, but it didn't take long for it to enter the upper class of Rome and then eventually become, uh, what Rome is today. Uh, this is a weird fact that I know, uh, but the Pope is actually a very, very distant creation of like the second King of Rome, like Numa, the second King of Rome, uh, 
instituted a high, like a high priest. And this high priest is eventually what would become the Pope today. So it's like the Roman church, the Rome, Rome and the Roman church are still so similar. Uh, they really just became uh, an evolution of each other. So when you, when you decided to, to kind of pack up your bags, what, um, what did you envision? I, I think you mentioned it's been five years now. Did, did you envision a journey of five years? Like what were you looking to accomplish? What were, what, what, what was the idea behind that? And, uh, did you have like a very specific idea, a very specific path or was it more organic and, and things have just kind of naturally unfolded? So as far as me, uh, like selling everything that was January this year. So that's only been this year. Uh, so in total around 10 months by the time I'm done. Um, but I've been going back and forth. Um, as I was telling you before, I was dating someone in Germany. And so I was I was going to Germany the last couple of years um, to, to spend time with my girlfriend there. And so that was my first exposure, leaving the country and everything, uh, getting my, my feet wet, so to speak. But it was only for periods of three months. Uh, so this is the first time it's been for an extended period. Yeah, as far as like me wandering right now, the uh, the ancient world, so to speak, it's only been for this year. Um, and then before then, just like being a YouTuber in the States, I, there was a lot of travel because of the nonprofit. Um, so I was basically wherever we were opening new groups, you know, I was trying to get to, so I've been to Texas, been to California, been to Canada. Uh, you know, we've been, had a little get together in Colorado. We've been to Minnesota. So there's definitely been a lot of wandering. Um, but the initial call for selling everything was through ritual. Um, it, I did it as a dedication to Odin because one of the, the main factors of Odin is wandering and uh, kind of just, I mean, this is a story literally Odin has in his um, within his mythos is he would just disappear for years at a time, disguise himself as a human and just wander the world. And I don't have to disguise myself as a human, I don't think. And so I just, you know, took up this role myself. I'm like, okay, I want to sell everything and I want to see what you can learn from this. And yeah, it's been the the craziest experience, honestly. Um, I, I feel like, you know, I look back who I was in January and I've changed five times since then. Um, and it's, it's, it's been incredible, but yeah, very tiring. <laughs> so your, your background is uh, photography is, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's see, going back to my memory files now, I'm 29 now. Um, I started YouTube when I was 25, 26 sometime around then it was like right at the time of my birthday um and i was a restaurant manager for a while so i, I started working in restaurants i was 15 and then at 22 i was a restaurant manager i did that till i was 24 25 i left that um and i started my own photography business and then uh from there i started working at a car dealership as well taking pictures of cars uh, which was one of the strangest jobs I've ever had. And uh, one of the most mind numbing jobs, because it was literally like hundreds of pictures of cars every day. Uh, but the thing that was nice about that job is that was the time I started the YouTube and they really didn't care what I did as long as I took pictures of cars all day. And so I edited a lot of my beginning videos at that job and <laughs> uh, kind of birthed uh, the YouTube until, um, you know, I kind of got the signs that it was time to leave that job. And by the time I did that, I, uh, yeah, I got into, got into the YouTube and, and so, uh, the photography I did often on for a real, like full job for a year. Um, but I did, you know, concerts, weddings, all the standard stuff that people do. So when you, when you started, uh, when you first started leaving the States and, and, and going to, 
I guess predominantly Europe to, to these places where there 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 were still roots of these more uh, nature based religions. What was the what was the plan? Like the, the the plan was to make specific videos on certain aspects of this to to bring more awareness, to educate yourself, to kind of share in your own journey. Did you have specific topics that you wanted to cover and and explore deeper? Like what was your what was your kind of creative process in that? So getting into it, my initial plan was uh, to go to the Netherlands because we were having an event there. And then after that, I was going to Scotland. And after that, I had absolutely no plan. And so there was definitely an organic nature where I was going to go where I felt guided to go. Um, I was going to do research in the places I was at. And then if I saw a place I wanted to go, I would then be like, okay, how do I get there? And so I wanted to spend, I knew I wanted to explore more into the Celtic because for three years I was talking about Norse stuff. And so that was one of the reasons I chose Scotland. I chose uh, the UK in general, um, also because of their lenient tourist visa. But <laughs> also with the, uh, you know, all the sites here, I love stone circles. I love burial mounds, hinges, these kind of things. I mean, in the UK alone, there's 20,000 burial mounds. Uh, there's like 10,000 ancient monuments. You know, that's insane. That's something we don't have in the States uh, at all. Or, you know, uh, Peru, I doubt there's, you know, that large collection of ancient sites either. Um, you know, so it's something that was so, so alluring here to like be able to just, you know, from where I'm standing right now, I can be at a stone circle in 15 minutes. Um, I can be at a, you know, an island across the way with 50 ancient sites in an hour and a half. You know, that's something that doesn't exist in the States. And so the ease of access uh, to ancient sites was the most alluring thing about Scotland. Um, and then, yeah, so I would just basically put my nose to the books. I started doing research. Um, and then I, I, I did my plan to go to Scandinavia as well and film in places there. Uh, but yeah, I really kind of went where fate took me or spirits took me, however uh, metaphysically you want to get with it. Uh, but yeah, I really did let it be an organic process. So was the 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 Norse tradition, is, is that the first one that, that really began to interest you and that you started doing more research on? Yeah. Um, and I think it's because the source material is easier to get and easier to understand in North America. Um, like if you read through the Poetic Edda, it's fairly easy to comprehend. There's some complicated stories. The prose Edda is a little weirder. And then you can get really weird when you start getting into the individual sagas. Uh, but if you read Celtic mythology, one, it's really random. Um, and you get into like the Mabinogian or Mabinogian. Uh, pronunciation. That's the other thing. Celtic is really weird with pronunciation and people get really, really uh, pretentious about it as well. Um, is there's so much nuance, the pronunciation, not to mention, you know, whether it's in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Britain, you know, Gaul, Germany, it's all different. And so you're going to piss someone off. And so I think it's uh, really hard to get into like the Celtic side of thing, uh, whereas the Norse is a little easier and uh, easier to get the source materials on. So I think a lot of people if you told them the, just the word Norse, they, they'd have some kind of very superfluous or ethereal view of, of maybe some, you know, Thor or Odin, or they, they, they've heard a few words, but I, I don't think many people have a much of a deeper understanding of, of that. If, if someone wanted like a, you know, a kind of quick 10 minute history lesson on, on, on the Norse tradition on North mythology, how would you, how would you kind of, educate them a, a bit more on, on, on what that actually is. 
So yeah, oof. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. Um, so the I'll start for how most people get into it, and it's Vikings. That's the gateway. I keep on using this gateway drug term. Uh, but there's so many of these gateways, the introductions into things, and then the rabbit holes you fall down afterwards. I think that's spirituality in general, no matter where you, you get into. Um, but most people get into it because the Vikings are cool. Vikings are popular. Vikings TV show looks cool. Northman's a cool movie. The music's really great. Like, that's a huge thing. I think the music it really gets people in. Uh, like, the sound of the ancient North. Oh, it's so good. I, you know, still to this day, I love the music that comes from uh, Norse-themed bands. Uh, but typically, when you're talking about the Norse, you're talking about the uh, mythology that comes from Scandinavia. Uh, so mainly Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. However, the majority of it was preserved in Iceland. Um, and so this is where we get a lot of our source materials. Basically, almost all of our written materials come from Iceland uh, during the Christian era. And so um, Iceland converted at around 1000 uh, CE, you know, and they kind of maintained the traditions in secret because they were so isolated. And so they had a pretty un, you know, changed view on things for a while. Uh, and they still do. They're uh, one of the first groups that reformed in the 1970s or so uh, to form uh, modern Ossetru. Um, and so, yeah, basically Viking Age is what a lot of people look at. It's where Norse mythology survives is this kind of post-Viking uh, Age era. And then once you start diving more into it, it really is something that extends so much further than the Viking Age. And that's something I'm really big on talking about um, is when I say Norse, I'm not just talking about Vikings. I'm talking about uh, the, you know, the Iron Age, what came before the Viking Age. Uh, I'm talking about the Bronze Age and going all the way back to potentially, you know, the Neolithic era. What what led to Odin? You know, how long has Odin been in existence as a deity? Uh, and we're, that date keeps getting pushed back further and further. Um, like recently they found uh, for the longest time, uh, runes were thought to be around, you know, 1500 years old or so. But recently that got pushed back is the, the oldest runic inscription now comes from about 2000 years ago. Uh, and so we're finding more and more that this this time and this period that is Norse, uh, you know, this identity of the ancient North in Scandinavia uh, keeps going further back in time. Um, so, yeah, as far as like the mythology, it's really, a, a, well, a, a cosmology is how I see it more. It's just how the ancient people of Scandinavia viewed the universe. Uh, and I think this is what still sticks with me the most today is they see it as Yggdrasil, you know, this massive uh, tree that holds all the worlds and its branches and its roots. Uh, and we're this realm in the center of it. Uh, that is, you know, surrounded uh, by mountains and, you know, there's a, a snake in the sea that, you know, one of the gods fights and there's a giant battle at the end of times. And, you know, you have the stories of Valhalla and the Einherjar and, you know, Fenrir and all these really epic tales. And I think that's really, it's a really beautiful mythology. Um, you know, I'm a little uh, like jaded to it now or uh, numb to it now because I've, I've been a part of it for so long. But the first time you read Norse mythology, it's badass. You know, that's it's just so cool sounding. Uh, and then when you get into the nuances, uh, there are a lot of just really interesting stories. Uh, like one of the the more interesting ones um, is the Havamal, which is something that a lot of people get into uh, with Norse mythology. Because supposedly the Havamal are the, is the direct words of Odin giving advice to humanity. Uh, and so, you know, it's, th it's mostly things like moderation. 
you know, don't drink too much. Don't, you know, you know, drinking is a memory sealing heron, uh, you know, carry wisdom with you on the road, you know, be kind to your friends. Uh, and so you can either read the story as the, li the literal words of Odin, or you can read it as a series of wisdom giving, say, you know, uh, scalds or wise men or wanderers that all compiled their knowledge and shared it at different courts and different lands. Um, and so, yeah, this, the, the term Norse encompasses a lot, but in general encompasses the spiritual traditions, or at least Norse mythology, Norse paganism, uh, the spiritual traditions that come from ancient Scandinavia. And what do you think it is? Uh, I find it often interesting, these kind of uh, definitions or, or, or boundaries, uh, uh, what do you think it is that separates the, the Norse tradition from something where it begins to change into something else? Do you, do you think there are certain characteristics, people, land, um, ways of being? Like, like what is it that, that particularly makes something Norse as opposed to, again, something else? Mm. So this is where I have to put my, my, my hipster hat on. And I don't believe in labels, man. I don't, I don't really like labels anymore. Like, you know, now that I've traveled more, the more I see the commonalities than the, di the differences. And so this is what I, I really focus on now is how similar things are. So, you know, when talking about the world tree, you see how many cultures have world trees in them, uh, particularly in shamanic tradition. Um, is having this upper, lower, and middle realm. Again, as described, you know, Michael Harner, this is one of the things he sees, is that mo most cultures have this. Uh, so to see these commonalities between so many in this world tree or serpents or giant beast, uh, or even in the north, you know, you have a, a deity like Thor uh, that has a hammer and wields lightning and thunder. Uh, but then in the Finnish tradition, you have Uko, the, you know, he also has thunder and an axe. And then you have uh, Perkonaz, I think, or, you know, uh, I'm not going to get this name wrong. Payrun, Payrun. Uh, and then there's like, yeah, there's like so many different like Northern or Central European deities that have some kind of weapon, thunder, and are like the hero god. And so, you know, there's so many different ways you can look at that. You can see in them as evolutions of each other. You can see them as just different uh, ways people look at the same thing. Or are they all individual beings? And this is something that is debated still to this day. And then you end up with the question of are gods real or are they just archetypes of something that we, we venerate or do they actually exist in something we call the spirit world? Um, and that's something that uh, I can't give you a definitive answer. And I would say maybe maybe they're all true. Um, and that's one of the things that is really interesting about spirituality and talking about these things is all these things could be true. They could be archetypes or they could have been a real person, but still be an archetype. Uh, perhaps that real person is like a demigod or they reach some form of enlightenment and now they exist in the spirit world. Uh, we don't know. But at the end of the day, when we connect to them, uh, it makes us feel something or it gives us uh, just a more connectedness to the universe or to being a warrior or being a father. And that's ultimately what matters is the experience we get from honoring these things. Uh, but when it comes to like building these walls and saying, this is Norse, this is Finnish, this is Germanic, it's something that has been done by scholars, really, um, because this identity didn't really exist in the past. Uh, when you had, it was really just the tribe. You had your community that had stories, they had gods, they had ancestors that were told orally and shared among each other. But you didn't know about the traditions of the village 50 miles away, more than likely. Uh, if you did, it was just from traveling people that would come and visit you. 
Um, you didn't know about the beliefs of the Finns unless you had these wanderers, these travelers. Uh, and so you could you could make these walls smaller and smaller how you define things based on the, just the individual regions. Um, just like here in the UK, you know, my gosh, you know, not only is it just, it's not just Scotland, it's the Picts, it's the uh, Strathclydes, it's Fife, it's, uh, you know, the Campbells, the McDonald's, the McDonald's, you know, McDonald's, the McDougal's, you know, there's so much individual culture that gets broken down. Uh, so you can really label something to hell if you want. And so I'm really, I, I've grown tired of doing this because I don't think it actually benefits us. But instead, we look at these similarities between uh, these really unique traditions that spread across Europe. One interesting thing you you said earlier on was this idea that that spirits are all around us, and and somehow with this idea that that like it almost seemed like you felt that like you could you could sense it that it was something not in the the realm of the abstract anymore. And and it's interesting because it, it it's uh, it's something we've again we we seem to have gotten away from this idea of spirits and yet e even that's in the root of that word spirituality which we do tend to to use uh, quite often now uh, you were even mentioning this idea where like Iceland was was kind of a stronghold of of a lot of these uh, these Norse traditions and even in in. Uh, in a place like Scotland or um, Iceland, I, I believe they still have like a committee when they're building roads where they have to consult with the little people to see if the, the road is, is, is mm -hmm. kind of allowed to, to pass through there. What, uh, what would you define uh, as spirit or the spirit world? And, and, and is there anything from your experience that you, you feel has kind of opened you to that or, or given you some sort of deeper insight into that? Yeah. So as far as like spirits, you know, you can go as far as saying everything as spirits, you know, that's, I think the very direct form of animism is the cup I'm holding right now has spirits. The beans in this cup have spirit. The milk in this cup have spirit. Uh, my headphones have spirit, even though it's plastic. Um, and this is where I struggle a little bit because to me, this is this is a cup. I don't actually think this cup has spirit. Um, but let's say this cup was my grandfather's cup. Let's say he gave it to me the day he died. And now it has a story. So would you say it has spirit now? Perhaps as the spirit of my grandfather because it's tied to him. Hopefully not because this cup says what the fuck on it. Um, <laughs> it's not my cup. It comes from this house I'm staying in. Uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of my point is like, Spirit is sometimes something that we give something because of our stories and what we rub off on it. Um, or, you know, when it comes to like sacred groves, you know, is a sacred grove special before humanity showed up and made it special? Um, you know, when you went there, was there signs of elves, you know, the little people, was there strange mushrooms growing there? Or is it because people went there for hundreds of years, for thousands and thousands of, you know, different rituals you never knew? And then it becomes special. Uh, so sometimes I think uh, in the case of a spirit, when it comes to objects, sometimes I do think or, or places it's because of the stories they have. They, be, uh, they become alive with these stories. Uh, but then also I think with spirit, it comes to things like waterfalls, like when you're hiking and you see the most beautiful waterfall you've ever experienced. And it just brings you to tears. You feel something like in your chest, like you, you, you feel love. I mean, that's the way I describe it, because it's like when you fall in love with someone, um, you know, you look at them, you look in their eyes and you just have this feeling of like, you know, that's the only thing that matters. And I think that's something we experience with nature as well. 
um, you know, seeing a beautiful mountain or, you know, one of the reasons I love Scotland is just standing in the highlands and it's love. Uh, and I, you know, how can we love something that's not, you know, you know, doesn't have something, it has spirit to it. Uh, and so I think this is, you know, this feeling that we get when we experience nature or experience people or stories, that's spirit. Um, and then you could argue with spirit world, uh, you know, for shamans is, is when you go into the spirit world, all of these things have unseen forms. And that's definitely going into, you know, the, the, the woo woo of everything. But, you know, I think that's true as well. I mean, I've been to many shaman events. I, I've, I've done many shaman journeys. Uh, and I, I do believe that these things might have this, this spiritual counterpart in the, in the other world uh, that we can kind of interact with through ritual and ceremony and things like that. You've mentioned ritual a few times, and and you said that was one of the things that you you really felt was lacking, and like even the the religious upbringing that you had, the, the, this kind of the act of doing, the act of partaking, of not just being a, an observer, but 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 actually doing something, being a part of something. Um, how would like like what what does ritual mean to you and 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 how have you seen ritual used in in, in some of your journeys with uh with these cultures that you've been observing and partaking in yeah so i guess ritual to me is i mean the the term ritual itself is usually something you do frequently or every so often you know every time the moon rises you know to a full moon or something that you do every you know spring something you do every summer or something you do every day a daily ritual uh so it can really expand to, to the mundane like that and i think starting small for people uh something i've been i've been really into this year is yoga um you know i see yoga as a daily ritual and in that sense, it can also be spiritual because I'm connecting daily to my body, something I, I haven't done for years and something I've been needing to do for a very long time of, you know, taking that moment to be like, how do I feel? You know, how does my body feel? Oh, my knee's a little sore today. That's interesting. Why is that? And then reflecting on that, what does my body need? Uh, and I think that's something that most people never do these days is reflecting what, what does my body need? Uh, and so my own personal health journey, that's been such a crystal component is, is analyzing my body, uh, and then understanding that, you know, there's so many muscles like, whoa, there's a muscle there. I need to stretch that every now and then I don't, <laughs> you know, so there is a practical sense to ritual, uh, that can also be spiritual because as you become more connected to yourself, you can become more connected, uh, to the world around you for sure. Or the people around you, uh, by doing this. Uh, but in the the seasonal sense, that's something I think is pagan uh, is typically very uh, much part of that is having seasonal celebrations, um, understanding that we have not always lived in this nine to five world that, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And, and still today, many people, indigenous people live according to the seasons. They live according to when the crops uh, can be sown, to when they can be harvested. Uh, they live to when the animals uh, produce the best. They, they live to preserve for winter. Um, you know, so many, you know, all of our ancestors had to go through this. And so the reason they had seasonal rituals and seasonal celebrations uh, is to mark these days, to, to remember these days, to celebrate these days, um, and to have the stories of why do the leaves fall down? Where does the snow come from? Is it some old hag with a broom or, you know, like uh, coming out to shake her bed pillow? You know, there, there's a reason for it because they didn't have science to understand these things. Uh, so the stories come along to these seasonal changes and the rituals that come with that as well. And so just because we may have the scientific understanding of the universe now, which is great, um, it doesn't mean we should lo shouldn't lose our stories or it doesn't mean we should lose our stories. 
And so I think a lot of people get back into these pagan traditions, particularly here in, in Northern Europe, because they miss the stories to why things happen. You know, okay, we can explain the science of snow. What's the story of snow? That's far more interesting, I think, to the everyday person. It's far more interesting to me. Uh, and so to do these rituals is to acknowledge the stories of the ancient past, to acknowledge uh, the ancestors that survived, uh, you know, and, and, and reproduced and to create us so we could live these softer lives. Um, so I, I think there's definitely an aspect there. Uh, but to expand further, I think there is uh, this aspect, again, I, I keep on bringing this like shamanic aspect or this, this more spiritual aspect. Uh, this is something that uh, I, I'm really proud of what my community does is we really focus on mind states of ritual. What does ritual do uh, to the self? Is, you know, what, what happens if you chant this? What happens if you dance doing this? What happens if you sing? If we call out to Odin in this particular way and we offer this um, as a group, um, what kind of effect can we create? And I think this all kind of goes down to healing as well is, you know, to be able to release yourself, you know, even for a weekend from our real world and join the spiritual world to receive the gifts from it and to give gifts to it. You know, there is this, this kind of connection that, that can heal you and, and, and make you feel more connected to our natural world. Um, and so really exploring, I think that's a more exploratory thing through ritual is how can we make connections and how can we have experiences uh, through ritual practice? Do you think there's something that, that, that a lot of people are kind of this idea that, that we have um, begun to find these <clears throat> explanations based on science, um, but that are often, uh, th there's kind of a dispassionate knowledge there. there. There's something that we can read in the book and, and have an understanding that's coming from the intellect. But as you were saying, there, there was something in these more nature-based cultures where you see the crops come up. You, you, you have to plant something from seed. You begin to see the change. You begin to see it sprout and, and grow and, and maybe flower and fruit. And there's a real connection there, much like you were saying when you were, I think, in the highlands of Scotland, like, the, like looking out, there, there was a love that, that you felt. And, and it seems like something that, that, that's really an integral part of a lot of these nature-based um, traditions is the nature part. Like there, there's this real power or, or reverence or, or different feelings, different emotions, different teachings that arise simply from being in the presence of nature. And, um, you know, and I think at probably no point in human history, like have more people lived in, in cities, for example, kind of removed from nature. Like even you look up at the, the sky and it's very rare that you're, you're overwhelmed by by the the magnificence of the stars because it's just all drowned out in light um do you think that's a part of 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 maybe the the, the power of some of these nature-based religions and, and something that that people are also lacking and and kind of feeling this need to you know even as you said like even if it's just for two days on the weekend to actually be in that environment, to be more in a nature-based environment, to be doing rituals, to be connected to nature, because there's actually something uh, that's that's maybe not only healing, but but actually maybe even vital for for humans to partake in that. Yeah, no, I 100% agree that being a part of nature is vital. I, I don't think there's any argument against it. Um, we are nature beings. We're not city beings. We weren't, you know, we weren't evolved even scientifically. We didn't evolve to live in a skyscraper. Uh, we evolved to live in nature. 
Uh, now, I don't think any of us want to go back to, you know, child mortality rates of the ancient days. I don't think any of us want to go to the uh, average death being around 20 to 30 years old. I don't think people really want that. Uh, but I do think, you know, the simplicity is what we crave sometimes of, you know, living in our technological world uh, with our cell phones and and our apps and these things. And, you know, it, it's a lot it, like it puts a lot of pressure on our mind. Like that's why, you know, we have so much anxiety now. I think the mental health crisis is the biggest thing we're facing right now. Um, and I, I think the, the mental health is equally tied with the spiritual health. Um, and so, you know, I suffer from anxiety and a, a lot of it is because of technology. Uh, and a lot of the times, if I do feel myself getting anxious, what I have to check is how much am I using my phone? How much of my, you know, playing video games, watching TV. And my answer and my solution is put your phone away and go outside and it cures it every time. And a lot of the times you have people that live in these big cities and, and they are, they have crippling anxiety. Um, and I, I've witnessed this at our events. Just getting them to one of these events in nature, because we always have it in nature, um, you know, even if we have a house, you know, just seeing the change from being away from the phone for two or three days, being around trees, being around clean water you can just bathe in. You know, these are things that people in cities aren't used to or they forget. Uh, and that is the most ama amazing thing. Uh, and then you, on top of that, put on ritual and you're like, okay, now we're going to connect to the ancestors, rub this mud on your face. And they're like, you don't just rub mud in your face. It's like, here we rub mud on your face, you know, and it just it makes it even deeper. Uh, and there's definitely these kind of levels to our events of, you know, kind of the introductory level where it's just like, hey, this is what no city is like. And it's like enough. It's mind blowing. But then you start going deeper into the ritual category. Um, and it really is healing. And, I, you know, even myself, I've experienced this going back to the normal day every day, going back to the city with these new experiences allows you to be a better person, to be a kinder person, uh, to share with other people, to care more for your community, to care more uh, for the, you know, cleaning up litter. You know, I can't tell you how many times I, you know, I go to cities um, or ancient sites in Scotland and you just see rubbish and litter everywhere. And I think this comes from a society of people who are completely disconnected from nature and spirit. Um, and so... Definitely, I think the answer is because we have to live in cities. There's not going to, you know, as as long as our modern age exists and nothing crazy happens, we're going to continue to live in cities more and more. Uh, but as we continue to do this, I think that the need for spirituality, the need for uh, events that get people out of the cities, that get people connected and thinking about their ancestors is going to be more and more needed as well. You spoke a little bit about uh, runes. Can you, and I know that, again, this is a big question, but can you, you talk more about that? I, I think that's another thing that a lot of people have maybe vaguely heard of and they have kind of a vague idea of what that is. But is that something you can you can speak more about? Hmm. Is there anything in particular with runes you'd be more interested in knowing? Because there's a few different sides. You know, do you just want to know like the history or like the modern uses? Like what do you... What do you think would be some? Both of those sound sound great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so I should I, I should have precursed this a while ago. Uh, we've just been going with the conversation, but I always like to say this um, is I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm not an archaeologist. I have an art degree. I'm simply someone who has had experiences. Uh, I'm not a guru. I am not the answer. I'm not Jesus. I am just a dude. Uh, I guess I did say that. I'm just a dude uh, that's lived a pretty normal 
life. Uh, and so I, I'm simply sharing my experiences. So uh, don't take everything I say as truth. Don't think, take everything I say as law to the listeners out there. Um, I am only helping to share my experiences to give you a better worldview. Uh, so when it comes to things like runes, this is something I'm definitely, I don't have 100% the right answer. I have my view and my opinion. Uh, and then there's the history that goes along with it as well. And I'll do my best to present that information to the best of my knowledge. So I uh, just want to make sure I said that. So runes um, for me, <laughs> Uh, are one part bullshit and one part writing system. <laughs> uh, and then maybe one part spiritual as well. Uh, and the reason I say this is because from what we know, from almost every historical source of what runes were, as they were carved on stones, they were a writing system. They were a way to say Thorgir was buried here. You know, um, Ozum was buried here and his sons erected this stone. This is 95% of your runic information. Uh, now, sometimes the runes could spell things like spells. They could uh, spell things like, you know, if you touch this stone, you will be cursed by a warlock. Those are my favorite stones. Uh, you know, or there's some, you know, like one of the famous ones now is it's just spelling out uh, so-and-so was Odin's man. And this is a really cool coin that says this because it actually shows that Odin's name was used in like 500 uh, CE, which is really cool. And so it pushes back Odin's name even further. And so what we know most of the time is that runes were a writing system. Uh, now, there is a mythology to them. Uh, so within uh, Norse mythology, uh, within the Havimal specifically, it talks about Odin uh, sacrificing himself to himself. And the way he does this is Odin the god went to the top of Yggdrasil and hung himself from the trees for uh, from the tree for nine days and nine nights, and he was pierced by a spear, which sounds very similar to Christianity and Jesus getting pierced by a spear. Uh, so again, the commonalities of the self sacrifice for the greater good or for the attention of knowledge or enlightenment. Uh, and so what Odin receives from the self sacrifice is the runic knowledge, and supposedly this runic knowledge is magical. Uh, we don't know specifically if those same runes are the ones we have. That's where the, the conflict comes in. Uh, but sp supposedly uh, 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 Odin took up the runes and they had spells for, you know, healing people, for hurting people, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then the runes themselves do have counterparts for aspects. So the, the easiest one, like Fehu, means cattle. Uh, and so what could this cattle mean? Well, it could mean livestock it can mean prosperity because cattle used to mean wealth because you were a rich man if you had a lot of cows uh and so we tie something like fehu uh to to wealth uh to prosperity um and so it usually means good luck but does this have magical properties that's where we get into symbolism in general do symbols have magical properties uh if i wear a mjolnir every day is it magical or is it just means something to me uh and i think that's you know where it leaves a lot for people to interpret themselves uh so i, I this isn't a video podcast right or is it as well it is both yeah Oh, it's so both. Very good. Yeah. Okay, glad I haven't been making weird faces. Uh, so for people watching, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny when I get hypocritical about the runes because I have many rune tattoos. Uh, you know, I have three runes on my fingers. I have, you know, multiple, you know, bind runes and all this stuff. And there's definitely an element of me exploring things because, again, I was kind of figuring things out. And so I have a huge bind rune on my arm. Uh, and bind runes are a great example of neo-pagan practices, so stuff that we brought into this modern era that we think means something. Uh, but in the ancient past, we don't actually know if it did anything. Uh, so a bind rune is essentially saying, okay, these are the aspects of joy, wealth and prosperity, ancestry and journey. And if I put them together, that means it's a spell that's going to give me all of those things. 
I mean, so far I can't say it's not been accurate, but do I think that this tattoo is magical? I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure at this point. Um, but to me, they're symbols for something. And so the, the symbols on my finger, you know, all represent Odin. Uh, and so when I got my tattoos in my hand, it was to signify that I was accepting that I wasn't normal. Um, you know, because hand tattoos are one of those, you know, the big taboos of a Baptist, you know, an ex-Baptist man, you know, from the, you know, from Southern Baptism with his, you know, uh, great grandfather who was a Southern Baptist preacher, you know, having hand tattoos, I'm basically the devil. Uh, and so it was a, a kind of a way to symbolize that I am stepping outside of the norm. Um, and, you know, Odin was a, a big driving force for me. So, you know, getting Odin, uh, you know, runes associated with him tattooed in my hand symbolized something to me. Um, again, maybe it's magical, but for me, it's mostly symbolic. And I think that's the biggest thing to take from the runes um, is they were mostly a writing system. They were also a way to symbolize something, particularly now in our modern era. Um, I mean, almost every Norse pagan band you have, uh, every Norse band has a rune as their main symbol. It's a symbol. Um, now, where I will say that they could be magical is when it comes to, again, ritual. Because how I use the runes majorly is by chanting them. Um, because to me, you know, the writing system existed, you know, possibly for 2,000 years. But the runes more than likely existed through oral tradition before then, because this is where most of uh, the nature based, the, the ancient practices come from, is oral storytelling. And so sharing the runes orally, I think, is more important. Uh, and so typically in a ritual, I will chant them either through throat singing or through just song in general. Um, or if I need, uh, want to create, you know, call to a certain god, I will chant runes to that deity. And so in that sense, they could be more magical. Um, the reason I say uh, bullshit is because. In my honest opinion, um, runes as a divination is bullshit because we have no proof that they did this in the ancient past. Uh, and this is clearly something that has been invented in recent eras. I'm not saying it's not real, but we're more than like really sure that they didn't divinate with runes in the past. However, divination was big. They, they were really big on divination in the ancient past. They loved to divine things. Um, and they mostly wanted to divine the weather. And... It's it's really it's kind of like a snake oil salesman to me sometimes. I'm very critical of divination. Um, I, I like divination as a way to look into yourself. Um, I, I like techniques that really just get you to look into your own psyche as almost like a psychological thing. But I don't believe divination in itself is magical. There will be people that are listening to this podcast that do not agree with me. And that's why I had a precursor that I am not the law. Uh, this is just my personal viewpoint. Um, but I, I do agree that there is a magical component. However, historically, it's hard to say where those connections come in. Great. Can you speak a bit more about Odin? Again, this is a big, a big, uh, question, but it, I mean, it, it does seem to have this, this very prominent role in, in, in Norse traditions. It's something that it even seems for you is quite prominent. As you were saying, a lot of your tattoos are, are kind of an ode to, to, to Odin. Um, are you able to maybe share a bit of a, of, of a story of Odin, like where that, that archetype or, or that literal God comes into, to Norse mythology? I mean, you mentioned this aspect of, of one of his aspects is this wander, um, and, and what the significance of that, that is, but because it, you also differentiated between these kind of, uh, monotheistic religions versus more polytheistic uh 
And so also this differentiation between Odin as maybe like a singular god or a god amongst many other gods as well. So I think what gives Odin so much prominence is one, he is a really interesting character um, because he is definitely not, you know, Christianity's God. He is a very, very, he's not Jesus. He's very complicated. Uh, He is both, you know, good in the sense that he was, he's one of the first beings. Uh, Him and his brother supposedly uh, killed the giant Ymir and made our world, uh, our enclosure from his, from his bones, from his body. And so he's there from the, he's the alpha and the omega. He's there from beginning to end. Uh, But the thing that's really interesting is he doesn't have really a redemption, <laughs> you know, like you kind of see this, this man, you know, if you look at the chronological order of the stories a little bit, like a very curious person at first, like he's wandering the world, trying to figure things out. Uh, you know, he's trying to gather wisdom from every source he can. He wants to become the wisest of them all. Uh, there's a story where he hears that. I think it's a giant that's saying that they're the wisest person. He's like, well, I'm going to go prove them wrong. And so he goes to have a wisdom spewing match with this, uh, this being. And at the very end, uh, through cheeky uh, uh, and cunningness, he, he wins and, and becomes the most wise. Uh, he also messes with his son. You know, Thor is wandering around Midgard, coming away from a recent battle, and Odin disguises himself as a gray-bearded man on the other side of the, the fjord and yells insults at his sons to mess with him. And it's like, who is this being? You know, who's this person to look up to? But then you have this Odin that also uh, has another son, Balder. And, you know, you have this kind of grumpy old man at this point, but he becomes infatuated with his son. His son is so wonderful and perfect. He does everything he can to protect it, uh, protect him. But no matter how much wisdom he had, no matter how much an army he had, it didn't matter. His son was going to die and he did. Uh, and so you can't ultimately stop fate. He couldn't stop his own fate at death uh, at the end of the Battle of Ragnarok. He knows that Ragnarok is coming and he knows he's going to die at it. And no matter what he does, he can't prevent it. And so even for this, you know, hopefully someone that may have no knowledge of Odin sees that he's very complicated uh, and very interesting. Uh, but another aspect I think allures a lot of people is is how many aspects he has. Uh, it's not just wisdom. It's not just war. Uh, there's actually a really good list um, of, I think, 208 names, even on Wikipedia. Uh, maybe it doesn't have all 208, but 208 names that are associated with Odin. And they're all pretty badass. <laughs> so that's the other thing you can call, you know, Odin's just one name. Uh, you could also say Grimnir. You can say Yulfadir. You can say Hrofnagoth. Uh, and yeah, I think this is a, a really good, like the the band Hylung, which have you heard of Hylung? No, no I haven't. Okay, if you take anything from this podcast, after we're done or even after we're done recording, you need to listen to Hylung. It's going to change you. Uh, absolutely amazing band. So they have a song called Our Father Haitir. Uh, and essentially it starts with calling out to Odin through his various aspects, through the ravens that he has, through the wolves that he has, through his spear. And then, uh, then you get to the main part of the song and it's literally just chanting, I think like over 30 of his names. Uh, and so it's a really trance inducing song. It does it like repeats it like eight times when they play it live. They got like crazed out warriors on stage with spears and shields. They're going back and forth, chanting the names of Odin. And that's what I'm saying. Like when you, you start combining these aspects of mythology with ritual performance, that's when things get really crazy. Uh, and so I, I credit Highland a lot with what they've been able to do with that. Seriously, will change it. If you've never listened to Highland, uh, people who listen to this podcast, just shut it off just shut this off go listen to high long it will change your life and then go see them live um and then come back and finish the podcast you're welcome 
but yeah, there's a really good song with just these names. And so there's so much power just in these names of Odin, let alone the stories that go along with it. Um, and so, yeah, just really interesting being. Um, and he's also the one we know the most about. I think that he has the most stories. I think uh, the order goes, Odin is the most, Thor in the second, and then Loki are the three most talked about deities in Norse mythology as it survives today. Um, and then all the other gods fall to the wayside really quickly. Um, you know, even though we know that some of them were more prominent, uh, deities such as Freyr, which is a, pro you know, a, you know, fertility deity. Freyr is probably one of the more important deities of the ancient past. Um, you know, him being tied to fields and, uh, and fertility and crops, uh, more than likely means he was more common. In fact, one of the things we do know about Odin is particularly he was not a common deity to follow. And he was actually uh, more than likely seen as like kind of a bad deity because uh, he was, you know, really notorious for getting people killed because he likes playing games of war. And so typically the only people that would follow Odin from what we know, again, this could just be from who was recording it, seems to be the upper class were following Odin. But deities such as Thor were more prominent because Thor is more of the everyday, every man's god. Uh, so Thor, Freya, uh, Freyr, uh, Frigg, these are more than likely more common man's deities, um, which is something I, I've talked about before is I, I think when people get into Norse paganism for the first time, they should not go for Odin because he is actually kind of a dick. Uh, like what you, you learn hard lessons from following an Odin path. Uh, but, th you know, deities such as Thor or Freya or, you know, Idun, uh, these are deities that are more light, uh, more tied to the natural world. Uh, I don't think Odin's actually very tied to the nature-based stuff. He's more tied to uh, the self in the sense of wisdom, intuition, um, self-sacrifice, uh, pain, what you've learned through pain and suffering. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to die in. Like you could, you could actually of all the gods uh, in Norse mythology, Odin is one of the few that you could actually talk about for a very long time because there's so many different aspects to him. Yeah, agreed. So kind of switching gears uh, from from Norse traditions to to another one you, you've you've studied the, the Celtic traditions. Um, can you give again? It's a it's a big question, but but a, a bit of a brief overview of, of of what the Celtic traditions are, where you find those, what what the roots are, maybe again, what are what are some characteristics that 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 make it uh, Celtic by by name? Yeah. Um, I should definitely hear like my knowledge of Celtic is nowhere near as good as my knowledge of Norse and my knowledge of the Celtic stuff is much more practical because I've spent so much time here. You know, I've, I really rubbed the old stones and I've spent way more time in the Celtic lands than I actually have spent in the Scandinavian lands. Uh, so my knowledge of source material is very lacking. Uh, I've read through them once, uh, but it's not something I've really given, uh, like dove headfirst into. So, uh, when it comes to source material, I'm not the best expert on, uh, on Celtic stuff. Um, but the, the biggest thing to take with the Celtic um, is the term Celtic is terrible. It is absolutely horrendous term because it's too big. Um, because the actual term Celtic uh, encompasses all the way down the Danube River. Um, so basically going into like Turkey and the Middle East almost. And then all the way up into Germany, parts of like into France, uh, all the way up into like the Dane lands a little bit and then up into uh, the UK as it is now, like England, uh, and then obviously Irish and then even uh, arguably into the Scots. But some people would say the Scots aren't actually Celtic. Um, so that really the, the defining thing that people say was Celtic is all language based um, and then some art and stuff like that. But it's it's so such a broad term to talk about. Um, and the, the main crucial problem is you have this broad land, like 
multiple thousands of years of human history of basically most of Europe outside of like the Mediterranean. But then most of our source material comes from Ireland. And so, you know, you're trying to combine these Irish deities with a term that spans all of Europe and it doesn't really work. Uh, and so when most people hear the term Celtic, uh, they are going to picture the Irish side of things. Uh, but yeah, Celtic really does encompass so much. Um, but and then the other problem, ah, yeah, the, the main thing with Celtic is there's problems <laughs> uh, because the other problem is people will also picture things like stone circles. They'll picture, uh, you know, Stonehenge. But these things are not Celtic. Uh, the ancient sites, the majority of ancient sites that exist in Ireland, England uh, and mainland Europe today are not Celtic at all. They are Neolithic. They come from the people before the Celtic people. Uh, yet they're so heavily associated with them. Uh, so, yeah, there's so many issues. Um the best thing I can say about Celtic is, to me, it is a very localized spiritual practice. Now, the Norse, yes, as well, but there does seem to be more of a combining narrative of the Norse cosmology and the way they saw the world. Uh, and we see more of the, the wide span of deities. So, you know, you can see Odin worship all the way down in Germany, all the way up into, into Norway, into Iceland. So, you know, they had more of a set deity list. They most likely still had uh, localized deities. Uh, but the Celtic were almost all localized deities. There's very few Celtic gods that span all of what Celtic is. Uh, and even the ones that you can make an argument for, it's hard to say like, um, uh, Caranunos, uh, Serenus, again, I'm terrible at pronunciation, uh, but the horn God, at least as it survives, there's, I think, two pieces of evidence for him. One is on the Gundestrup cauldron that is in Denmark. The other is in France. Does that mean that he was worshipped in Denmark? Probably not, because the cauldron was made down south and in the Danube area uh, and then somehow made its way up to Denmark. So where was he actually worshipped? Probably in the Gallic lands, probably in France. But yeah, it's hard to say. Um, and so, but what you really do see is the localized deities, uh, because you really, really don't see widespread deity worship uh, from place to place. Uh, problem number five or whatever we're on is the most the information we know from Celtic is from the Romans. Uh, and then also from Christianity. Um, so there's very little evidence that survives of who the Celtic people actually were outside of what the Romans wrote down about them and what the Romans made them do. Uh, we only know about most of the Celtic gods because of the Romans, because they made them make statues of them, uh, because that was a Roman tradition. Uh, but then they also gave them Romanized names. And so a good example of this is uh, Sulis. Uh, Solus is luckily the Celtic name or the Britonic name, um, is in the, the modern town of Bath, England. Uh, there is Solus Minerva. Minerva is a Roman deity. Uh, and when they came to this area, there's the only hot spring in the UK. It has healing properties and the Britonic people were there. They were worshiping, they were chucking stuff in that water and they were hailing this goddess Solus. And the Romans built a formal temple there. And then they started worshiping Sulis. Uh, they did call her Minerva, but still this name Sulis survived. Uh, but our only depictions of Sulis that we have are Roman depictions. Um, and we wouldn't actually know about her unless the Romans built, built the temple there because there was no real formal structure before the Romans. Um, so it's really, really complicated. Um, but the, the main core of Celtic tradition, even outside their deities, uh, is mostly sacred groves, the Druids throwing things into waterways because that's uh, how where they saw the other world existed. Um, and then uh, ancestor worship are the, the main things that hold it together, I would argue.
Can you speak a bit more about uh, druids? Because because that's another term that I think a lot of people are familiar with, and and uh, <laughs> you know, again, it's one of those ones where there there's a lot of, I guess, ways you can take that question, or maybe similar to the runes about different beliefs. But uh, anything that you found uh, that 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 kind of give you some more information or insight into who the druids were. Yeah. So every precursor we just had with the, with the Celtic. Transcribe that to the Druids. <laughs> uh, so I, I do, if I have pride for any video I've made, it's my Druid video. Uh, so, you know, that's a 25 minute video. If you want to know more uh, audience out there, if you watch one video for me, uh, the Druid video, honestly, uh, I filmed it in a supposed ancient Druid den in Scotland, a place that supposedly the Druids were at. Um, and I did so many months of research. I read so many books. Uh, this is like my magnum opus, one of my proudest works. Um, and I try to keep it as... Um, on topic as possible because um like the druids is something that's so romanticized um and not just by us in our modern era by people in like the 1800s they're one of the first things that got super romanticized by scholars uh and so there's so much extra fluff on top of what druids were in the ancient past it's really really hard to dig into them um uh, i think i described it once is it's like making a recipe for a cake but you only know like two of the ingredients or three of the ingredients, you kind of know what the cake looks like. And so you do your best to make the cake. Uh, but then you realize the cake is dry and bitter and gross. And so you pile a bunch of frosting on top because you want to make it taste better. Uh, and that's essentially what's happened with the Druids is it's like a really interesting subject. It's really cool. But when you actually break it down to what we know, it's so dry and so like unformed that you have to pile on the sugar to make it make it palatable at all and so that's really what's happened um you'll read and it's funny someone agreed with me like i just talked with a scott about this uh is if you actually compile the list of information we have about the druids into like one document it'd be like eight pages long maybe 10 uh but then you look at any book about the druid and they're like 600 pages and it's like all of this is just fluff it's all sugar that's been added on top uh because what we actually know is so so little um, but with all the precursors and the sugar acknowledged, what we actually probably can say about the Druids and the thing that makes them most fascinating is they were a widespread, very long lasting hierarchical order of priests that existed essentially across all of what we know Celtic was. And that's one of the things that make it so cool is we, we think the Celtics because of the Romans writing about them are these, are really like disorganized barbarians because that's what the romans wanted you to believe but then you look at the druids and realize that the druids existed they had schools they had temples uh they had a system of communication we don't understand uh they had a hierarchy they had an arts druid they had someone at the top uh they had a really complex system of teaching people things they had a complex system of rituals they questioned reality they studied the stars they studied science they were politicians they were doctors they were wizards they were all these things um and you can see why people read this and you're like because you're reading the roman roman writings and you're like whoa they studied the stars they were politicians they had a complex system of communication we don't understand and you're like of course this is really cool but that's all we know you know you, you're reading these really interesting bullet points with absolutely no elaboration and that's what makes it so, so hard. Um, like, I want to know these conversations that Druids had. But one of the things also recorded by Julius Caesar about the Druids is the fact that they they were uh, very, very anal about not writing things down. They believed that if you wrote things down, you were expressing a weak mind and that the only true way to uh, share things was orally and through memorization. 
Um, and so that sounds really great for the druids that existed 4,000 years ago. I agree, but it leaves us very little now uh, because there is basically no firsthand account. Like no, there's nothing ever written by a druid down that we have. Um, it's all secondhand, thirdhand accounts. Uh, but I think the thing that is the most fascinating is that they did exist for so long. There's potential that the Druids as an order existed for thousands of years. That's something that's really hard to comprehend. And so, you know, you have a, you know, two or 3000 year order that's been going on and evolving, uh, sharing information and performing rituals across a very large area of Europe, uh, for a very, very long time. And that's so, so cool. Uh, and I wish I could sit here and with confidence and tell you more about them. Uh, but you know, we don't know that much, but what we do, what we do know is so, so cool. Often you hear associated with, with, with the Celts or the, the Druids, this, uh, Ogham language, uh, which seems to have similarities to mm -hmm. what you were talking about with the runes as well. Is there anything you can, you can speak about that? Hmm. Um, so this is a game where uh, people with pronunciation, you know, got to curl my mustache. It's actually, it's Ogham. It's not Ogham. It's Ogham. Um, or probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah because celtic is just bizarre uh or any of the celtic languages but uh with all i don't know that much uh again there's been an attempt to make it a divination practice much less successfully than runes again we don't really know we have no idea if this was used as a divination system in the past so you know it is in the potential bullshit category um however um, it was used very similarly to the way the runes were. It was on stone saying so-and-so died here or just a name of a person. Uh, very rarely was it elaborated. Uh, very rarely did it go on for, it was actually a very, very concise writing system. Um, and from what we know, it probably wasn't used by the Druids because I think Oum examples actually come pretty late in the Celtic era. Like our only surviving Oum examples come from like after the time of the Romans. I don't think there's anything uh, like in the Bronze Age. I think it's all pretty early Iron Age. Uh, and this could be because uh, it's a very fragile writing system uh, because it's very lightly carved lines into stones exposed into nature. Uh, and so there's very few examples of it. Um, I've seen a few and yeah, it's like, it's almost impossible to read because uh, it's so faint on there now. Um, but yeah, that's all I think I can speak on it. There's probably more. I know there's uh, there's a deity tied with it. Uh, so it would be Ogma, it'd be Ogma, Ogma. Uh, in the Irish, supposedly in the Irish legends, uh, there's a god that brought Oum to uh, the Irish people, much like Odin brought runes to the people as well. So there are connections there. You, you did an interesting video, I think it was entitled something like Four Reasons Shamanism Will Save the World. Uh what mm -hmm. is that something you can maybe talk more about or summarize or is it something you still feel and and why you think uh you know again that this word can can have a lot of different meanings but but um what are those characteristics within shamanism that you think are 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 really apt to to help humanity um so we kind of touched on them a little bit i think that the key term in it is healing uh, which also, for the people who haven't stopped and listened to Heilung, and for a reason you should definitely listen to them as well, is Heilung is German word for healing. Um, so shamanism is really at the core of Heilung. Um, and I think this term healing has been something that I've been really, really interested in this year uh, because I've been to a few shaman events now. Uh, that was one of the big things for me traveling. I guess you asked earlier if there was 
goals for my travel. And one of the goals was to attend shaman events uh, because it's something I've always played with, uh, but I always wanted to respect. And so the only way I could see respecting it is to, to visit shamans, to spend time with them and to learn from them because that is the way that information is meant to be shared. Not just, you know, you can read books all day, but until you actually sit with a shaman and learn from a shaman, it's just not the same. Um, and so I made that video four reasons why shamanism will save the world. Uh, right after, well, it, during this event, I went to an Estonia, which was an incredibly beautiful event because um, it, it, was, it fascinated me knowing about it uh, because it's in Estonia, which is a country most people know exist because uh, that country only has like a million people in it. It's an ex-Soviet country from the 90s. And um, they have a really rich shamanic tradition that goes back for thousands of years. And so it's always kind of survived there. And there's a, a place called the Archaic Recreation Center, a recreation center. Uh, it's just like a spiritual retreat center near Tallinn, the capital. And every year they have a conference where shamans from around the world are invited. Uh, so you have the main group. There's a Siberian group. Uh, you have an Estonian group. Uh, there's a Native American shaman from Arizona, I believe. Uh, there's a Colombian shaman there. Uh, there was like a guy from Britain there as well. Uh, and a few other that I don't, I, and I didn't get to meet everyone, but there was a huge collection of shamans there. And then you have a bunch of workshops and you have healing sessions as well. Uh, but mostly it's about learning. And you kind of, you know, the fee was only like 200 euros. It wasn't expensive for the whole weekend. Uh, you camp there and you just do different ceremonies. There was a powwow, there was a sweat lodge, uh, there was throat singing classes, drum making classes, like all this stuff is really like a place to share knowledge. Uh, and the thing I thought was so beautiful about it is just the wide range of shamans that were there showing that there's such commonalities that bind together. Uh, like one of the things that was talked about by uh, the uh, Native American shaman uh, during his speech is uh, with sweat lodges um, is you're in fin uh, near Finland and Estonia. They're really big into sauna. They love sauna. I've been with the Finns. Let me tell you, they love sauna. That is, and, and it's very spiritual to them. Like uh, sitting in a dark room with your besties naked sweating is like the most spiritual thing you can do in Finland. <laughs> and it, like, I have Finnish friends. It's the first thing they invited me to do. It's like, let's do sauna. Uh, and man, they, they, they want to boil you alive. And so this is one of the things the shaman was talking about. He's like, sauna and sweat lodges on paper, you know, are two different things, you know, from two different cultures uh, that, you know, come from different sides of the world. But the the core of why you do them is very, very similar. Um, and so he's like, I'm building a sweat lodge here so we can bring together those commonalities. And that's just beautiful. You know, that's what we need more of in the world is like, okay, yes, we have differences. Like this man dressed in beautiful Native American regalia, uh, you know, doing traditions that he was taught, you know, from, you know, someone else decades ago and doing it in Estonia of all places and sharing it with us. That's beautiful. Uh, and if the world needs anything, you know, it's like we need to come together more uh, for our similarities, not our differences and to celebrate our differences at the same time. Uh, so that in itself is just a beautiful thing. And I think shamanism of, of all the things I've seen has the ability to do that. Um, but then just through the techniques of shamanism um, and the understanding of it is the reason shaman was a job is because it was a needed job, just like any other healer, just like, you know, a medicine man, just like someone that, you know, deals with herbs is a shaman is there because they heal you spiritually. And for thousands of years and in the cultures that still survive today, shamans are needed because it is accepted that people need spiritual healing from time to time. And if you don't have a shaman, you're fucked. Um, and so you have to have them. And I think one of the things we're seeing today is we have, we live in a world without shamans or without many of them. And so people, you know, arguably 
90, you know, 90%, the vast majority of humanity is in desperate need of spiritual healing, but we have no one to do it anymore because no one's taking up these jobs or because no one knows they exist. Um, and so I, I do 100% genuinely believe that the shaman is something the world needs. Uh, and we need a lot more of them and we need a lot more people doing it genuinely. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing we need in this world right now is spiritual healing. You, you were saying uh, that, that you've also begun organizing certain events uh, that, that are maybe related to that. Can you speak more about that? Like, who are those events for? What you're doing in there? Uh, like, like, uh, like, like, just if someone had never been to that, like, what, what, what what's the field that they're they're entering? Specifically for like the more shaman based ones. Yeah. Yeah. So like this is something new. So uh, again, I've always been playing with these techniques like drumming. You know, drumming is one of the cores, you know, getting someone into a trance. I've always been playing with these things because it always made sense to me. Uh, but I never had a name for them. I never had formal training, you know, and I didn't really know what I was doing. Like more often than not, it had very positive effects, but I could recognize in particular that how powerful it could be uh, or how wrong it could go. You know, luckily I've never had anything truly bad happen, but I'm like, holy crap, something could bad, something bad could happen. Uh, and so I really wanted to take it on myself to go get training, to go sit with actual shamans and to learn. And so uh, I went to a really, really heavy experience uh, where it was, you know, just a boot camp of like, here's how you, you know, it was from a shaman. And it was like, here's how you do these techniques. Here's how you do spirit animal work. Here's how you get people's spirit animals uh, and, and a few other things. Uh, and so there's definitely something that I feel very confident on, and it's mostly helping people find their spirit animals, their, their power animals, their spirit guides, their filigia, whatever you want to call them. And so, um, I, I feel very confident, but I need practice. It's something that you don't just learn once you have to practice. Uh, and so luckily, you know, I'm in a situation where I already had this spiritual community. And so I, I'm starting to establish the events. The first one, uh, official one we're going to have is next weekend, actually, um, where I have an entire day where it's basically structured very similar to the, the first day I had at this, this shaman workshop, where we're going to be going through several spirit journeys, conversations, lessons on how to find your personal spirit animal and how to connect with it. And then it's all going to lead to a shape-shifting ritual where you actually become part of your spirit animal and allow it to become part of you uh, to restore you, uh, which is which is healing. Um, if you don't have your spirit animal, in theory, um, if you're not connected to your spirit animal, you are sick. And until you find it again, you will continue to be sick. And then you have to maintain your relationship. And so by this logic, if everyone has a spirit animal and most people aren't connected to it, everyone is sick spiritually. Uh, and so this is something I really want to do because um, there's definitely levels to shamanism. You know, there's something as, you know, light and happy as finding your spirit animal. That's pretty light stuff. Uh, but then you start getting into the heavy stuff like, you know, I'm going to excise this curse from you. Uh, you know. That's stuff I'm not ready for. It's stuff I've not been taught. It's not stuff I've been learned, uh, trained on. And so that's where, you know, uh, being honest with people, like someone messaged me, you know, leading into this event. They're like, is, will there be a shaman present? And I told them, like, I am not a shaman. I am currently learning shamanic techniques, you know, potentially one day being a shaman. Uh, I feel very confident doing this. And that's why, you know, we're doing this. I was like, but if you ask me to exercise you and like get a demon out of you. I ain't doing that because I have no knowledge and training in that. And so I think a lot of it just has to come down to honesty, uh, not just with me, but anyone who practice shamanism um, is, you know, did you just get your class online or have you actually sat with a shaman? 
So kind of wrapping things up, uh, are, are there any other, I don't know, stories or, or interesting things that, that, that come to mind from your travels that, uh, I don't know, that, that you think uh, could be interesting for the audience to hear? Anything funny happened to you? Anything profound? Uh, anything that, that, you know, because also before we started, you're mentioning you're, you're beginning to transition back to the States. Is, is there a particular experience or something that, that stands out from your journey that, that, that really sits with you in a way and, and I don't know, speaks to you in a way? Yeah, I think the most profound thing. So, you know, obviously I've been doing a lot of reflecting since my, my journey is coming to an end here. Uh, but the most powerful aspect of, of this entire travel, you know, again, I've sat with shamans, uh, you know, I've done some plant medicines and uh, nothing like hallucinogenic, but, you know, uh, stuff that has genuinely healed me. Um, and, you know, I've seen the tops of mountains, I've swam in northern seas, you know, I've done so many magical things. But the thing that stands out to me the most is humanity is I think I was maybe becoming a little bitter, uh, especially during COVID. I think we all were a little bit is COVID did a lot of really strange things to us, uh, both in the lockdowns and the mental health, uh, or, you know, just COVID in general is that that was a really strange human experience. And everyone can talk about that now, like no matter where you are in the world, you can talk about COVID, which is really weird. Um, and I think it, it affected us all so deeply in so many different ways. Um, but when I started traveling, and I started talking to people and meeting people is, gosh, like, it's just humanity is the most beautiful thing in the world. Um, you know, if you're feeling in a, in a spot in life that you feel this bitterness, especially after the last few years of losing hope in humanity, let me tell you that hope should not be lost because I've met, I think I've sat down to do the math once. I met and have genuinely had real conversations with 100 and 150 people or something this year. Um, where it's like, I've sat down and we had heart to heart conversations about life. Uh, we hugged, you know, we embraced each other and it was genuine. And I've had absolutely no bad experiences with people. Uh, genuinely, most experiences I have with people are beautiful. Um, and it's just, it's the most heartwarming thing uh, to look back and, and, and see how many people I've met and I've talked to and I've learned from. And we, we've all had different ex worldviews, different backgrounds, different nationalities, ethnicities, sexualities, all these things. Um, and it's just been so beautiful to talk to everyone. Uh, and so one of my favorite lines from the have them all is, uh, you know, I, I can't quote it for quote for quote, but essentially the greatest happiness of, of humanity is, is other humans. Um, and this is something that supposedly was said by Odin, something that was supposed, or maybe said by wise people 2000 years ago, but it's something that I think still stands today is, is our happiness is truly found in one another. Um, and we should not lose that during these dark times we've been going through. Beautiful, Jacob. Well, great, my friend. Is there anything else that, uh, that we, we didn't touch on that you'd like to, to address before we begin to wrap things up? Uh, sorry if I offended people with the divination comment. <laughs> That's the, one of the only things I get fiery about. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I'm critical of it, but I do think there's, I, I do think there's a thing uh, for it as well. Uh, but I, I just wanted to say that because after I said it, I'm like, maybe I've got a little hard on the divination thing. But uh, I don't think you'll offend. But no, I think we, we covered quite a lot. <laughs> you know, you never know. Uh, but yeah, I think. Uh, I think we've covered about everything. Honestly, we've given a, a nice general worldview to a lot of things and a lot of precursors to uh, uh, Druidism and Celtic. <laughs> Lots of, you know, 
hold on to theirs and stuff. Yeah, well, great. If, um, yeah, no, if, if think... people are interested in, in, in learning more about you or your YouTube channel or contacting you, what, what's the best way to go about uh, finding out more about you? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing right now, obviously, is uh, the YouTube channel. Um, it's been going on for a long time. There's over 300 videos there. Uh, anything I've made this last year, I, I highly recommend. I think uh, I've made some beautiful work. Um, so the YouTube channel is just uh, under my name, Jacob Todson, or you can do At the Wisdom of Odin. And it's the same thing for Instagram as well. It's at the wisdom of Odin. Um, the big thing right now is the, the nonprofit that I run uh, with many other wonderful, amazing people, the Fellowship of Northern Traditions. Uh, we are looking to buy our own piece of land uh, in this next year uh, to have our own spiritual retreat center. Um, so we've, we've always rented properties, uh, but we want a property of our own. And so we've raised $21,000 so far, which is great. Uh, and we just released a book as well. And so that book has sold over 100 copies. And so we're really trying to push uh, really big for this end of this year. We really want to approach a bank at the start of next year and be like, hey, what can we get? Uh, and so that's really the big push right now. And of course, we have events all over the world. And so if you want to attend one of our events, uh, check out our website. It's just northerntraditions.org. And we have all the uh, ways to support the nonprofit as well. But 100% of the proceeds uh, of everything go into the nonprofit. So no, no one, not even myself, sees any of the, the money from that. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, just you sharing your time and, and all the work you're doing. I think you're putting out some amazing content and, and just really, you know, we, we also with kind of the, the downfalls and, and, and a bit of the disconnect of the time we live in. I mean, it's also a very amazing time that we're able to to share in this way. And and I think what you're doing is uh, is really beautiful in that way, just giving people this access to information uh, through through your journeys, through your own self-exploration and and, and just being able to present that in a way that's 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 very uh, visceral, very very visually beautiful, and and really you know just being filled with your heart and your your soul. So uh, I think it's beautiful, and I, I'd really encourage people to to check out your channel because I think you're doing great work. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I didn't realize we actually I've already talked for over an hour and a half. Like I said, I could keep going. Man. You, want, you know, give me a pee break. I'll be I'll give you another hour. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, we're at one one hour and thirty three minutes. So a good, uh, and it's actually where I am eleven eleven right as we speak. So if you're into numbers, uh, maybe there's something yep, there. Good. So <laughs> well, great, my friend. Well, thank you very much. Okay, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jacob. Uh, it was really a pleasure for me to sit down and talk to him, to get to know him a little bit more, uh, hear about his story, uh, what brought him to to the life he's living. <clears throat> As I said, he has a really beautiful uh, YouTube channel called The Wisdom of Odin, uh, of Odin so I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really beautiful option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the patrons, to all the people supporting uh, via Patreon, as always, thank you very much for your help. I really appreciate it. And if you're able to do that, that's a really big help to me. And again, it's what really allows me to, to, to make this content. Um, 
If you're not able to do that, just doing some of the really small things, uh, if you're viewing this on YouTube or Rumble, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, those things uh, really help to drive the algorithms. Uh, and if you're listening to this, uh, the, the, the podcast version, whether it's on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the other platforms, following or subscribing to the show and also leaving a starred rating and with Apple Podcasts, a short review is a really big help. So I think that's it. Uh, I'm not 100% sure of the following guests coming on. Um, I have a few people in mind, but again, they're not uh, they're not set in stone yet, so I don't want to give anything away uh, in case it doesn't work out. Uh, but uh, as always, I hope to, to bring on some really fascinating guests. So I hope this finds you all well. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for your support. And I will see you all on the next episode.